Hey, Braveco men, I am here to tell you about our Braveco testimony book, The Father's Edition. This is chocked full of incredible testimonies of God coming through for men, for marriages, for finances, and here's why it's important. In Revelations, it says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And that is what happens when you get other people's testimonies as you get their breakthrough. And so, I want you to check out this book. If you want something that you can give to your son, you can give to your father, you can give to a friend that will really help them out in life, this book is it. You can go to braveco.org and pick up your copy today. We live in a time where masculinity is shamed and men don't know what it means to be a man. As a pastor and counselor, I've spent the better part of my life equipping and training others. My goal with this show is to translate my hard-earned experience into tools and tactics to help you become stronger as a man. This is the Brave Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Valentin. Welcome to the Brave Co. Podcast, men. This week, I'm going solo. We're going to talk about success fueled by failure. Thomas Edison was one of the most successful innovators in American history. He was the wizard of Menlo Park, a larger-than-life hero who seemed almost magical for the way he snatched ideas from thin air. But the man also stumbled sometimes tremendously. In response to a question about his missteps, Edison once said, I've not failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. Leonard de Graff an archivist at the Thomas Edison National Historical Park explores the inventor's prolific career in his new book, Edison and the Rise of Innovation. The author offers new documents, paragraphs, and insights into Edison's evolution as an inventor, not to forget those creations that never saw wild success. One of the things that makes Edison stand out as an inventor was he was very good at reducing the risk of innovation. He's not an inventor that depends on just one thing, DeGraff says. He knows that if one idea or one product doesn't do well, he has others that can make up for it. Chances are you haven't heard of Edison's botched ideas, several of which are highlighted here because the the Ohio native refused to dwell on them. DeGraff says Edison is not a guy that looks back. Even for his biggest failures, he didn't spend a lot of time wringing his hands and saying, oh my God, we spent a fortune on that. He said, we had fun spending it. Edison, who made an early name for himself, improved the telegraph, made, uh, sorry, moved to Boston in 1968 to expand his network and find investors. By night, he worked at wires, um, uh, taking press reports from New York for Western Union. By day, he experimented with new technologies, one of which he first was his first patented invention, an electro, uh, electro, electrographic vote recorder. The device allowed officials voting on a bill to cast their decision to a central recorder that calculated the tally automatically. Edison dreamed the invention would, would save several hours of public time every day in the session. He later reflected, I thought my fortune was made. But when he took the vote recorder to Washington, Edison was met with a different reaction. Political leaders said, forget it. DeGraff says, there were almost no interest in Edison's device because politicians feared 
it hurt the vote trading and maneuvering that happened in legislation process. It was an early lesson. From that point on, DeGraff says he vowed that he would not invent a technology that didn't have an apparent market. That he wasn't just going to invent things for the sake of inventing them, to be able, to, but to be able to sell them. I have to suspect that even Edison, as young and in, as an inexperienced innovator at that point, would have had to understand that if he can't sell his invention, he can't make money. The electric pen. As railroads and other companies expanded in the late 19th century, there was a huge demand for tools administrative employees could use to complete tasks, including making multiple copies of handwritten documents quicker. The electric pen, oh sorry, enter the electric pen. Powered by a small electric motor and battery, the pen relied on a hand, handheld needle that moved up and down as an employee wrote. Instead of pushing out ink, the pen punched tiny holes through the paper surface. The idea was that employees could create a stencil of their documents on wax paper and make copies by rolling ink over it, printing the words onto blank pieces of paper underneath. Edison, whose machinist, John Ott, began to manufacture the pens in 1875, hired agents to sell the pens across the Mid-Atlantic. Edison charged the agents $20 a pen. That agent sold them for $30. The first problems with the invention were purely cosmetic. The electric pen was noisy and much heavier than those employees had used in the past. But even after Edison improved the sound and weight problems, uh, sorry, and weight problems, problems still persisted. The batteries had to be maintained using chemical solutions in a jar. It was messy. By 1877, Edison was involved in the telephone and thinking about what would eventually become the phonograph, he abandoned the project and assigned the rights to Western Electric Manufacturing Company. Edison received pen royalties into the early uh, 1880s. Even though the electric pen wasn't a home run for Edison, it paved the way for other inventors. Albert B. Dick purchased one of the pen's patent technologies to create the mimeograph, a stencil copier that spread quickly from schools to office to churches, DeGraff says. And while it was hard to trace for sure, the electric pen is often also considered the predecessor of the modern tattoo needle. The tinfoil phonograph. Edison debuted one of his most successful inventions in phonograph in 1888. I've made some machines, but this is my baby and I expect it to grow up to be a big feller and support me into my old age, he once, he once said. But getting a perfect mach- machine to market was a journey that took nearly a decade and plenty of trial and error. Edison's entree into a sound recording in the 1870s was in some ways an accident. According to DeGraff, Edison was handling the thin, um, sorry, I'm not a great reader, diaphragm the early telephone used to convert words into electric magnetic waves and wondered if revising the reversing the process would allow him to play the words back it worked at first edison modeled the invention on spools of paper tape or groove paper discs but eventually moved into a tinfoil disc he developed a hand crank machine called a tinfoil phonograph as he spoke into the machine and cranked the handle. 
metal points trace grooves into the disc. When he returned the disc to the starting point and cranked the handle again, his voice rang back from the machine. The machine even worked on Edison's first test, the children's rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Reporters and scientists were blown away by the invention. DeGraff argues it helped make Edison a household name. He took the device to demonstrate up and down the East Coast, even making midnight visits to President uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, Hayes at the White House and eventually organized exhibits across the country. Edison imagined music boxes, talking clocks and dolls, speech education tools, talking books for the blind, but without a clear marketing strategy, the device did not have a target purpose or audience. As a man who ra- ran the exhibitions tour told Edison, interest was soon exhausted. Only two small groups were invested in it, those who could afford to indulge in the novelty and the scientists interested in the technology behind it. The machines also took skill and patience. The tinfoil sheet was delicate and easily damaged, which meant it could only be used once or twice and couldn't be stored for a long period of time. When, Ez- when Edison revisited the machine 10 years later, he was more involved in both the marketing and the medium, which eventually changed to a wax cylinder and his invention took off. The Talking Doll When he opened a lab in West Orange, New Jersey in late 1887, Edison decided that he wanted to turn out new inventions quickly and hand them over to factories to be manufactured and sold. What he earned from those sales would be put back into the lab and sustain him. He didn't want to complicate things. He wanted to do projects he could turn out in a short time that would turn a profit. Amongst the first of these attempts was the talking doll. If you've ever owned a talking doll, uh, and who didn't love to pull the string, Woody from Toy Story, you ought to thank Edison. Edison crafted a small version of his phonograph and put it inside the dolls he imported from Germany. He hoped to have the doll ready for Christmas in 1888, but production issues kept the dolls from hitting the market until March 1890. Almost immediately, the toys began coming back. Consumers complained they were too fragile and broke easily in the hands of young girls. Even the slightest bump down the stairs could cause the mechanism to come loose. Some reported that the toy's voice grew fainter only after an hour of use. Beyond that, the dolls didn't exactly sound like sweet companions. Their voice was just ghastly, DeGraff says. Edison re- reacted quickly. By April, less than a month after they were first shipped to consumers, the dolls were off the market. The swift move was one of the strongest indications of Edison's attitude toward failure and how he operated when faced with it. Or mills and separators. For years, Edison corresponded with miners throughout the United States. The deposits of ore along the East Coast, Ohio, Pennsylvania, were littered with the nonferrous rock that had been removed before the ore was smelted, DeGraff explains. In 1980, Edison, sorry, in 1880, Edison envisioned an ore separator with powerful electromagnetics that could parse the fine ore particles from rocks depositing them into two different bins. But he wasn't alone. At the same time, there were more than 20 small-scale ore separators being tested on eastern iron beds. To give himself a competitive advantage, Edison constructed several large-scale plants he believed could process up to five tons of ore a day, DeGraff says. 
After opening and closing a few small experimental plants, he considered, oh, sorry, he constructed a plant near Ogdensburg, New Jersey, which gave him access to 19,000 acres of minerals. Edison managed the plant in Ogdensburg, a change of pace for the inventor. The endeavor presented issues from the very beginning. A giant, the giant crushing rolls, five foot by six foot tools, Edison hoped would crush rocks up to six tons that were crucial to the plant's operations were all but useless when they debuted in 1894. As Edison redesigned them, his employees discovered the plant's elevators had deteriorated, which meant he would have to rebuild an entirely new elevator system. Edison never quit um, never quit getting the lab fully to full capacity. <clears throat> he fixed machines a dozen of times over all steps in the process from crushing to separating to drilling. The work came with a hefty price tag, which Edison nor his investors could cover or milling was a failed experiment. Edison took a decade to let go an uncared uncharacteristically long time for the quick stepping inventor Edison's home service lab before there was Netflix or Redbox, there was Edison's home service club in 1900s Edison's national phonographic company rolled out a number of less expensive machines so people could bring entertainment mostly music into their homes his and the other major phonographic companies including Victor Victor and Columbia manufactured the machines as well as the records they play. Edison believed his records were superior, DeGraff says, and thought by giving buyers access to more of his catalogs was the only way to prove it. He rolled out the club in 1922, sending subscribers 20 records in the mail each month. After two days, they selected the records they wanted to order and sent the samples onto the next subscriber. The service worked well in small clusters of buyers, but main, but many of them in New, uh, sorry, mainly them in New Jersey. Edison refused to let celebrities endorse his product or do much of the widespread advertising. Victoria and Columbia both had much more effective mass circulating advertising campaigns that stretched across the country. Something that was way beyond Edison's ability. DeGraff says, the company just didn't have the money to implement something like that on a national scale. Up to this point, most markets were local or regional. They're not operating on a national basis and the success is contingent on the very close personal relationships between the customer and the business person, which is exactly what Edison tried to achieve with a club and other plans for the phonograph, including a sub dealer plan that placed the records and devices in stores, ice cream parlors, and barbershops for demonstration. Then tasked the owners with sending Edison the names of potential buyers. The key to mass marketing is lowering the cost of production and recovering profits by selling more of it. But that was a radical idea in the 1880s and 1890s. There were some manufacturers, Edison among them, that just didn't believe that you'd be able to succeed that way. Mass marketing today is so uh, successful, we assume it's just common sense, but it's a commercial be behavior that had to be adopted and understood, says DeGraff. <clears throat> this is the last one, home projecting um, kinetoscope. After early success with a motion picture, motion picture camera, Edison introduced a motion picture projector for non-commercial use in 1912 with the idea that they could serve 
as an important education tools for churches, schools, civic organizations, and the home. The machines were just too expensive though, and he struggled to create a catalog of films that appealed to customers. Of the 2,500 machines shipped out to dealers, only 500 were sold. Some of the kinetoscope's issues mirrored the problems Edison encountered in other failed projects. Edison is very is a very good hardware guy, but does have problems with software, DeGraff says. The cylinder player that powered the tinfoil phonograph worked beautifully, for instance, but it was the disc that caused Edison's problems. With the home theater, the films themselves, not the players, were faulty. Edison experimented with the production motion pictures, expanding his catalog to include one and two real movies, from documentaries to comedies and dramas. In 1911, he made $200,000 to $230,000 a year, between $5.1 and $5.8 million um, in today's money from his business. But in 1915, people favored long feature films over educational films and short films. For whatever reason, Edison was not delivering that. Some dealers told him point blank, you're not releasing films that people want to see, and that's a problem. That's the part of the problem with understanding Edison. You have to look at what he does and what other people are saying about him because he doesn't spend a lot of time writing about what he's doing. He's so busy doing it. I think his impatience with that sort of, uh, with that sort of navel gazing. A- anyways, why did I read all of that about Thomas Edison's life? When I look back, we all know Thomas Edison's probably most famous invention was the light bulb. And in response to a question about his missteps, which is what I read in the beginning, I just love what Edison says. He says, I've not failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will work, specifically about the light bulb. So much of success in our life hinges off of our ability to handle failure. And I'll be the first one to say, I don't love failing. I don't love the idea. I don't love knowing that in order to reach success, I'm going to have to go failure by failure by failure. Because the truth is, is that the, the road to success is paved by failures. My um, friend once told me feedback is the mother of learning. See, we all like to be successful. We all like to do things that lead to success. We, we love to taste success because there's so much reward in it. But the truth is, is that if we can't learn how to fail, if we can't blend failure and success together, you'll never actually reach success. And I think Thomas Edison was kind of a master at letting the failure of one project be the momentum for another project. The other thing is, I think he let that failure not only teach him something, but the the pain of the failure just kind of roll off of his back. And when I look at my life, there's different places in my life where, man, I just, I feel like failure, the fear of failure has held me back so much and reduced my world um, to be small, especially early on. I remember the first time um, I was I was going to write a manual, a counseling manual, because that's what I did for a long time. Um, 
I mean, I've just done it forever. And, and finally, my dad was really encouraging me, hey, you need to write this manual and you know, kind of get your tools out there to the people who want to learn them. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. I'd love to do that. So I sat down and I started to kind of outline what the, uh, what the counseling manual would look like. And then, um, I just put the project aside and I put it aside for like, I don't know, six months. And my dad sat down with me and he's like, Hey, how's that project going? I'm like, Oh, it's, it's going okay. (laughs) I'm doing all right. And about, I don't know, couple months later, he would ask me again, Hey, how's that project going? I'd be like, Oh, it's, it's okay. Yeah. I've been really busy. And finally, like a year, year and a half later, my dad said, Hey, did you ever finish that manual? And I was like, Oh no, but I didn't know why. And I sat down with him. He said, you know, he said, son, why haven't you, why haven't you finished the manual? And I was like, I don't even know dad. Like And as I verbally processed, I heard myself say out loud, I just feel like I'm just afraid that I'm going to write this manual and then like people are going to read it and be like, oh, those principles suck. They're not actually good or that I'll finish it and no one will want it. And he was like, oh yeah, no, I get that. Um, So he said, hey, let's send it. Let's send what you have to the best guy that we know. So I know this guy who's got like three PhDs and uh, he's a psychologist, cool guy. And so my dad sent it to him and said, Hey, this is what my son's working on. Uh, We want some real feedback. Please don't hold back. Like, let us know where it's at. And I was hoping, honestly, I was hoping that he was going to come back and be like, Hey, listen, this sucks because I was terrified, right? I was terrified of looking like a failure. I just wanted to be done with the project. And he wrote back and said, Hey, Chris, I've, I've gone through all this stuff. It's brilliant. It's really, really good. Yeah. This is legit. You guys should move forward with this. And then I was like, ah, dang. Right. Because then it moved, it, it removed the excuses. But what happened is I had to, in order to get to accomplishment in my life, I had to look at failure and I had to be okay with failure. And man, just, it's so tough to, to not give up when you don't feel like you're doing good. It's also guys, why see if you're not okay with failure, you begin to reduce your world down to what you are good at and what you know you can be good at. And think about it like this. If you don't feel like a great husband, are you going to go home early when you finish work or are you going to stay at work and find a reason to keep working? If you're good at work, you're going to stay at work. If you feel really successful at work, but you don't feel super successful with your kids, you're going to find excuses, find reasons, find ways to to validate your need to stay at work longer and and validate why you shouldn't be home sooner. I mean, I, I'm not taking myself out of this equation. I'm saying, no, this is what I do. This is what we do. This is the temptation, right? Is, is I know how to do this really good. I know how to do I know how to do work. I know how to be successful there. I don't feel like a success at home. I'm gonna avoid that. Or it could be vice versa, right? Like I feel really successful 
in my hobbies, I don't feel really successful at work. So instead of focusing, growing, learning how to feel successful at work, I pour myself into my hobbies and I just reduce I, I reduce any chance of growing, of taking more ownership at work, of becoming a leader, of, of becoming a, a, a vital person. And these areas in our life that stay really small, that, that become pain points in our life, often, often stay weak and become pain points because we don't, we have a really hard time breaking through the barrier of failure. John Maxwell says it like this. He says, you can't separate failure and success. They're one and the same. Because part of the process that happens inside of failure, right, is you learn from your mistake, which to me is in life, we shouldn't be the judge. We should be the scientist. In most of life, we should take our judge hat off and put on the scientist hat. See, because a scientist isn't, he doesn't care whether something works or doesn't work. He cares why it works or why it doesn't work. And he begins to eliminate, right? Objectively, there's not necessarily emotions involved in it. It's not like, oh, I didn't do a good job with my wife uh, in that conversation. I'm just never gonna be good at that. I'm not good at these conversations. A scientist would go, well, what happened in that conversation? Where did it go wrong? Why did it go wrong? Okay, has this person ever had the right training? Do they have the right tools? Do they know how to manage uh, when his, when his uh, heart rate got up, when, he, when fear entered the equation, when he felt scared, when his emotions got into it? Oh, that's what he doesn't know how to do. See, the scientist is a problem solver. Scientist is full of hope. He's going, there's a will, there's a way. There, we just have to figure out the right combination. The judge, not so much. The judge is just going right, wrong. You're good at it. You're not good at it. And we are so bad. Guys, we're so bad about judging ourselves and judging other people that it's, we're just keeping ourselves from, from really our full potential. So John Maxwell, his whole idea, right, is that, you have an idea, you have a thought, you have something that you want to perfect, could be communication, could be something at work, and you try it, right? You go after it, you try it, and you fail. Now, a part of John's, part of his success, I can't remember what he calls it, so success cycle, is you try it, you fail, then you, um, you reflect, then you make the, the appropriate changes and you retry again and you get some success. And then you just keep doing that up further and further and further, right? And so you, you, you try to go for more success, you fail and you again reflect back on what happened, why it happened, you make the appropriate changes, you try again. And you're, you're just continuing that process throughout your whole life. See guys, failure was never meant to be final. It was supposed to be a teacher in our life. It was supposed to be an instructor. It was supposed to be in some ways a friend. And 
when we treat failure as final, it becomes the final word in our life. It becomes the judge, the, the thing that, that it's writing death sentences. It's, uh, you get locked up, you know, in what you can't do and what you're not good at. And a lot of us are locked up inside of this prison of what you can't do, what you're not good of. You know, you're held inside of this prison and, and the guy that's holding you is called, is the fear of failure. But we have to, we have to challenge and change the way that we think about that. The question that I want to ask you guys, that I want you to ask yourself is, what things in your life were you going after that you put down because you didn't think you were going to be good at it? or because there was pain involved in it that you need to pick back up again. Some of you, it could be you started counseling because you had an area in your life that you wanted to work on and you didn't see some improvement. So you put it down. Some of you, it would be, um, it, it could be a project that you were working on. For others, it's your marriage. For others, it's your kid. It's your relationship with kids. Some of you, um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. We, I want you guys to think about what's actually going on in your life? What is fear, the fear of failure, keeping you from? I was recently meeting with um, with someone, and I'm not gonna tell you if it's a guy or girl because I, I really wanna keep it discreet, but um, they were dealing with just a ton of hopelessness, having a really hard time getting motivated in life. And because they didn't see a lot of success in their life, even from a young child, life was really painful. And what happens when you live a painful life, when mom and dad don't really do a good job caring for you, when your brothers and sisters don't pay a lot of attention to you, is you begin to learn that it doesn't really matter what you do in life, it's painful. There's no way out of the pain. There's, there's no way to really improve. And when that begins to happen, you quit trying. It's not just... It's not just that you want to quit trying. It's when it happens so early in your life, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 years old, you literally don't know how to make life better. And you're really pretty powerless to make life better. So you adopt hopelessness. And hopelessness, guys, is a mortal wound. Living life without hope, see, without hope, hope is, is an energy. Hope energizes us. Hope gives us this idea that somehow, some way, I mean, I would, I would venture to say that Edison was full of hope. He was full of this driving force that said somehow, some way, uh, I can take these, th- these ideas and turn them into gold. I, if I just put enough time, effort, and energy, this is going to turn out better. Well, when you grow up in a home where it doesn't really matter how many times you try, it ends up in pain. And every time beyond that, sorry, Furthermore, the more times you try and fail, the more painful it gets, right? We all know that. So eventually you quit trying. Welcome to the prison. Then when you get older, what happens is you take the same mindset that you had as a child into your adult life. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm always going to be a failure. If I try and fail, it's going to lead to more pain. 
and and you you are so unwilling to risk anymore and it, and your life becomes this pain management right like i'm in pain i don't want to be in more pain so i just i keep the misery that i have you see women who live in abusive uh relationships with men you see them uh act this out why do they stay in an abusive relationship because the hell that i'm in is better than the hell that i don't know that's their outlook on life. If you're on the outside, if you're living a hope-filled life, you look at a woman who's being beat and, and when the cops come over and she goes, she makes excuses for him and lies for him, we all on the outside go, what the heck? Why is she doing that? It doesn't make any sense. Oh, it's the fear. It's the fear of pain. It's the fear of failure. It's the, it's the belief that my life is always gonna be in pain. My life's not gonna get any better. And again, the hell that I know is better than the hell that I don't know. But here's how we get out of that is you have to build a life of hope. How do you use failure to your benefit? It's here's the thing, guys. It's not just about changing just changing one thing like, okay, I'm, I'm going to see my failures as successes. It's like this. You have to change what you see as success. So let me ask you this. If, if you do one push up today, did you get any stronger? No. If you do two push ups. Did that do anything to you? No. If you fast for one meal and you look in the mirror, are you going to see any results? No. Oftentimes, this is the way that we look and we attack life. We look at life like, okay, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm going to try something. And then you try it one time. You do a set of 30 push-ups. You wake up the next day and you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't look any bigger. I mean, I, I don't look like Jason Ballatin. Guys, this body took a long time. I'm joking. But we do that, right? We get on a, a diet for a little bit or we start to eat better. Maybe you don't call it a diet. Maybe you change your eating patterns and you look in the mirror and, and your measure of success, you're measuring success hour by hour. And you can't, most things in life, you can't actually see any improvement hour by hour. You can only see improvement month by month, at minimum week by week, and month by month and year by year. And, and that's often why we don't end up at the destination that we want to is because the way that we're measuring success and failure isn't actually accurate. It's not actually accurate. And when I was having a conversation with this, this person in my office, they were saying, man, everything that I try just doesn't work. Everything that I do, it just ends up not working out. And, and I started asking like, well, how long did you try? What's your measurement of success? How many times did you try? Because here's the thing, guys, if you do 500 push-ups in a day, are, are you going to change? 
if you only do it one day, you're not going to see any growth. See, I would rather do 20 push-ups a day times whatever, 60 days, than to do 500 push-ups one day. It's about consistency. It's about it's about being steady. It's about continuing the journey, continuing the process. It's about building off of the last rep that you did and continuing to stack all those up. It's like a guy who's in a ton of debt, right? Let's say he's in $40,000 debt and he's walking down this road where he's picking up dollars and he gets to throw those dollars that he picks up at his debt and he gets 20 days into it and he goes, are you kidding me? I still have 39,000, $980 to pay. I've been at this for 10 days. I'm quitting. When our perspective, when we expect unrealistic things to happen from our minimal effort, when our measure of success is off, is, is uncalibrated, isn't right, we begin to quit long before we could ever expect to see really great results. Guys, anything, anything in your life that's, that you're really going to be proud of, that you're, you're going to really look back on and go, man, this is my light bulb moment. This is my Edison's light bulb. Edison fails 10,000 times or more at creating the light bulb. And, but the, 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 the important thing isn't how many times he failed. The important thing, the only thing that we care about me and you is the fact that he got it right one time. Same with Michael Jordan. Mike, I saw a quote the other day. It said, Michael Jordan was saying, I've missed, I don't even know how many shots. It was like over 9,000 shots in the NBA. None of us are thinking about the shots that he missed. You don't go, oh, Michael Jordan is arguably, arguably the greatest of all time because he only missed X amount of shots. No, what we care about is his performance, his overall performance, his, his consistency. Well, you go, man, a guy that fails 9,000 times, is that a consistent person? Look at baseball. What's a good, a really good batting average in baseball is hitting three out of 10 balls. Three out of 10 is good. If you hit 500 in baseball, if you hit the ball 50% of the time, you're like exceptional. I mean, think about it, guys. Like, how are you measuring success in your life? And more importantly, are you willing to go down the path, the, the path of consistency? Learning to build off of your failures, learning to get feedback. Like, again, like the scientist, when a scientist gets in a lab, he doesn't expect to design or to build or to create something perfectly the first time. He's going, he has this mentality. His mentality is, I'm going to learn this thing that I learned, this experiment, this failed experiment is going to be the, the, 
the stepping stone for this next one, for this next one, for this next one. And when I combined all those together, it's actually a path. It's actually a stepping stone up, up this mountain of success. And when I get, when I, if I do enough experiments, I will finally get the perfect combination that will whatever, solve a headache, cure Lyme's disease, cure cancer. The scientist isn't thinking, I'm gonna be one and done, one hit wonder, I'm gonna try it one time and figure this out. So here's what we need to do. We need to change the way that we look at failure. You need to make sure that your past isn't tainting the way that you're approaching your present and your future. And, and quit measuring success by thinking, if I try really hard today, quit measuring it in, in short-term gratification. Quit going, man, it, it, I tried really hard for a week and I don't feel any better. That's just the dumbest thing. It's, it's not gonna work. It's never gonna work for us. So what we can do is we can begin to build habits, build healthy habits in our life. A great book for anyone to read um, would be Tiny Habits. I love that book. It's can you build tiny habits in your life that helps to, to create these, these, this ecosystem that leads you down the road to success. Accountability is another great way to continue down the the path of success. Set a a structure and accountability with it, because we know science says that if if a guy has a goal, but he doesn't verbalize that goal and doesn't write it down, there's only a five percent chance that he's going to fulfill that goal that he has. But if he goes and he writes it down, and he creates a path, and he gets an accountability partner. He's 95% more likely to fulfill that goal. So it's like, start small, guys. Change the way that you see failure. Start small. Measure success the right way. Set a real plan in place. And get somebody that's willing to walk that path out with you. And you'll be well on your way to success. Guys, I hope this podcast was helpful for you and uh, really encourages you to get back on the horse, be consistent, and find, find success through perseverance. Have an incredible week. I'll see you guys next week. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Brave Co. Podcast. If you like this podcast, would you please rate it, review it, leave us a great comment. And if you like this episode in particular, share it with your friends and family. That helps us to spread the word. Guys, stay brave. We'll see you next week.